Hello and welcome to A Great Woman and Her Time, a WXAV 88.3 FM series that examines the extraordinary life of a 19th century Irish woman. And now your host, Graham Peck. Hello, my name is Graham Peck, and I am a professor of history at St. Xavier University in Chicago, where I have taught since 2002. I have produced a film and wrote a book about the origins of the American Civil War, and you can learn more about my career by visiting my website, civilwarprof.com. But if you love to listen to history, then stay strapped into your earbuds, because we are again going to take a journey into the past. In the first episode of this series on Catherine Macaulay, founder of the Sisters of Mercy, we learned that she was born to a well-off family in Dublin, Ireland, before falling into poverty and being orphaned at the age of 20. We also learned that she responded to these circumstances and later continued suffering by giving of her life unstintingly to the poor. To understand why she did this, however, requires moving beyond the contours of her life to investigate the circumstances in which most Irish Catholics lived in the late 18th and early 19th century. What was it about their lives that impelled her to a life of mercy serving them? The short answer to that question is that they deeply needed the mercy of someone. It was no easy thing to be a Catholic in Ireland at the time that Catherine Macaulay lived. To be sure, Catholics were approximately 80% of the population, the remainder a mix of Anglicans and Presbyterians, both Protestants. Yet Catholics had very little economic or political power. In fact, for centuries they had suffered severe legal discrimination from what were known as the penal laws. These laws ensured that Catholics suffered disproportionately from the misery that has long been the lot of the poor. The penal laws reflected the determination of the English crown to dominate Ireland. After all, the two islands are only separated by the Irish Sea. And hence, Ireland to England has always seemed a valuable resource, but also a potential threat. Filled with Irish Catholics, Ireland might potentially respond to the religious warfare that had fractured the European continent since the Reformation by rising up and striking Protestant England. Hence the penal laws, which virtually eradicated Catholic political power and confiscated the lands held by the Catholic aristocracy and gentry. Over the centuries, these laws ensured the rise of a largely absentee Protestant landowning class whose lands were worked by Irish peasants. These political factors, more than any other, explain the grim poverty that Irish Catholics suffered in the late 18th and early 19th century. There was, however, a powerful secondary cause. During those same years, the population of Ireland rose dramatically. In 1770, shortly before the birth of Catherine Macaulay, 
the island's population stood at about 3.5 million persons. By 1841, when she died, it had risen to above 8 million persons. The rate of population growth was even greater than these numbers suggest, because during the early decades of the 19th century, about one to one and a half million Irish people decamped for England, Canada, or the United States. Their departure provided some relief from population pressure on the land, but it was not enough. Two-thirds of Ireland's population relied directly on agricultural production for subsistence. So the dramatic rise in population put tremendous pressure on the land. Unless the land could provide sufficient food, the poorest people would surely starve. As one acid-tongued observer wrote in 1822, every patch of land produces a family, and every member of a family a new patch. Hence, a country covered with beggars, a complete pauper warren. These paupers lived largely in the mud. The government classified nearly 40% of houses in 1841 as, quote, mud cabins having only one room. A description of such houses was given by a traveler who said he saw thousands of cabins in which not a trace of a window is to be seen, nothing but a little square hole in front, which doubles the duty of door, window, and chimney, through which light, smoke, pigs, and children all must pass out. To be sure, the dire poverty described in this account was most prevalent in Western and Southern Ireland whose inhabitants were most vulnerable to starvation. Nevertheless, no one denied that Ireland's poverty was severe, widespread, and seemingly intractable. Hence the extraordinary importance of the potato. It was and is a highly nutritious crop, one that can be planted densely in poor soils. For these reasons, it became the staple of the Irish poor. About 3.3 million people literally lived on the potato. Day by day, meal by meal, year by year. The average adult Irish laborer ate about 13 pounds of potatoes daily, a monotonous repast supplemented only by milk, buttermilk, and fish. Thus it was that the poor Irish family hardly lived better than their pigs, who also consumed potatoes as they were fattening up for sale. Indeed, astonished travelers noted in wonderment that the pig was like a favored pet in Ireland, living in the home. There was, however, good reason for this. The pig it is must pay the rent is a speech you may hear repeated hundreds of times, reported a traveler in 1844. The logic of Ireland was ruthless and unforgiving. No potatoes, no pig, no rent, no land, no food.
Yet even the potato could not entirely protect the Irish poor. Of the 900,000 landholdings in 1844, about 15% were less than one acre in size, and 61% were less than 10 acres in size. These were subsistence farmers, and they and their families faced food scarcity as a matter of course. The land could simply not produce enough sustenance for them alone. Even worse off were the large class of farm laborers and farm servants who were even more vulnerable, totally reliant on employment for survival. The peril of starvation for such people was well known. In 1837, the report on the poor in Ireland estimated that about two and a half million people were in a state of semi-starvation every summer as they waited for the potato crop to appear. It is certainly no surprise, therefore, that the Irish potato famine in the late 1840s and early 1850s proved so murderously destructive. The country's population growth in the past century had simply left no margin for error for the Irish poor. When the famine hit, they would pay for their poverty with their lives. Ireland's rural poor responded to their circumstances by migrating to cities in search of work. Hence it was that they came in swarms to Dublin, where Catherine Macaulay lived. Dublin boasted some of Ireland's wealthiest inhabitants, its finest architecture, and a distinct and sophisticated culture. Yet the cities rich and respectable could not escape the island's pervasive poverty. It literally surrounded them. As one observer in 1816 reported, the city presented a spectacle at once afflicting and disgusting to the feelings of its inhabitants. The doors of carriages and shops were beset by crowds of unfortunate and clamorous beggars, exhibiting misery and decrepitude in a variety of forms, and frequently carrying about in their persons and garments the seeds of contagious disease. And their children were taught to depend on begging as affording the only means of future subsistence. Therefore, every artifice was resorted to by the practiced beggar to extort alms, and refusal was frequently followed by imprecations and threats. These circumstances were intolerable to the wealthy, who soon put in place measures to curtail begging. Yet begging was only one symptom of the problem. Prostitution was even more reviled. The city's over 400 brothels and 1,500 prostitutes by the late 1830s were a painful reminder of the precariousness of women's and children's lives in a society that offered few outlets for their labor. Many of Ireland's prostitutes were refugees from rural poverty. One sympathetic observer wrote that Irish villagers drove immoral women from their midst, forcing them, he wrote, into a wretched and vagabond life. The prostitute ultimately takes refuge in a town, he concluded, where she soon terminates her miserable 
existence. As this report indicated, the prostitute's misery was spiritual and psychological, not merely material. Most people considered prostitutes not as victims, but as predators against social morality, a contagion to be shunned. It was one more cost to be borne by Ireland's most desperately poor. The suffering of others had long been evident to Catherine Macaulay since she had seen her father succor the poor in her neighborhood. Yet as the years progressed, Ireland's poverty left a deeper and deeper mark. Indeed, soon after she received her inheritance, a poor servant girl came knocking at her door, imploring her for a place to stay. Apparently, the girl feared for her chastity, probably from the threat of a young master in the house where she lived. Catherine attempted to assist her, but was rebuffed at every house of refuge in the city. According to the early records of the Sisters of Mercy, the outcome for the girl was, quote, calamitous. This incident intensified Catherine's determination to open a house of mercy that would shelter poor women. Thus we see how Ireland's poverty shaped the Catherine Macaulay that was to come. Poverty was a wellspring for her mercy. All around her she saw abiding need, in ragged clothes, begging hands, and imploring faces. And seeing this, the spirit of mercy moved her to act. But material poverty is not the only kind of poverty. On the docket for our next episode is a remarkable story. The extraordinary behavior of the Irish poor in response to the threat of cholera in the early 1830s. It is a fascinating tale that you won't want to miss, and it will help us to understand why Catherine Macaulay not only wanted to shelter poor women, but also wanted to educate them. Stay tuned. You've been listening to WXAV's A Great Woman and Her Time, a program created, researched, written, and narrated by Graham Peck. Engineering and editing by Peter Creighton. For more information on the series, please visit Graham Peck's website, civilwarprof.com.